And the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Cephas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them, because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thank you very much, Erin. Good morning, everybody. It would be good if you uh, had that passage open and uh, hopefully you've been given an outline on the way in. And uh, we'll be spending uh, all of our time uh, on this passage, Acts chapter 4. Um, a few years ago, a uh, prominent British Christian leader was speaking at a conference about how the organization he led went about taking the message of Jesus to new areas. He talked about the way the Holy Spirit enables the mission of Jesus to go forwards. And to illustrate this, he spoke about the thermals in the Kalahari Desert. Uh, these hot winds rise up from the ground and help these massive African birds, vultures and eagles and so on, to, to soar for miles and miles and miles without beating their wings. We've all seen this on David Attenborough. You might have seen a buzzard on the motorway doing the same kind of thing. 
And he said, what we do is this. We discern where the Holy Spirit is working, and we move a team of people to that area, and we ride the thermals of the Holy Spirit. And when we ride the thermals of the Holy Spirit, ministry is effortless. Well, listen to these words of Jesus. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilence in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you. They'll deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Well, when you listen to the words of Jesus in Luke 21, I think you'd have to conclude that riding the thermals of the Spirit is not the way Jesus would describe the normal experience of Christian mission and ministry. It is true, of course, that the mission of Jesus is enabled by the Spirit of God, as we've already mentioned and as we've already referred to in our prayers this morning. It is true that ultimately... Any progress in the work of Jesus' mission is down to the work of God's powerful, sovereign, invincible spirit. It's something that we need to bear in mind as we look at this chapter, that what Jesus is asking us to do is impossible for us without the spirit. And yet how we experience the work of the spirit is so different to riding the effortless thermals of the Kalahari. Because the mission of Jesus always takes place, always takes place in the context of a world that is hostile to him and to his messengers. He continues in Luke 21 like this. He says, you will be betrayed by parents even, by brothers and relatives and friends. They'll put some of you to death. All will hate you because of me. This is your opportunity to bear witness and so the sovereign work of the Spirit is not to make ministry effortless, therefore, but to give us boldness and courage to speak in the face of hostility. Well, this is what we're going to see in this chapter in the book of Acts. We're going to see, with the help of one or two other witnesses that I'm going to mention as we go through, that persecution and suffering and hostility that is normal for the people of God as they hold out that word to the world comes with a precious freedom that no one can take away. In fact, as you'll see on the outline, there are three freedoms we're going to talk about. The freedom of the gospel itself, our freedom to speak the message of the gospel, and then most importantly, the freedom of God himself to bring about his purposes. Now, just before we dive into the chapter, I want to say, if you're not a believer this morning, then as Flick mentioned before, please don't tune out and think this isn't for you. In fact, I want to invite you to pay particularly careful attention because you're going to see something of what it means to become a follower of Jesus, what that life will look like, and also you'll see the reason that we want you to take Jesus seriously. So why don't we ask for God's help now? Let's ask for the help of God's Spirit as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for your word. And we thank you for this opportunity, this freedom, to hear it together this morning. We ask now that the work of your spirit will be powerful in our lives so that each of us might hear you speak and that we will respond with understanding and joyful obedience to Jesus' call on our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen. Firstly, then, the freedom of the gospel in verses 1 to 4. As I've been studying this passage this week, I've realized that one thing that makes this such a special uh, episode is that it's the first time in the history of the church that the gospel has actually been opposed. It's the first attempt to silence the gospel. Look how it begins, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. Notice that. The action begins with an interruption to 
public Bible teaching. This is not just stop oil protesters throwing a load of orange paint on them. These are the Jewish authorities. It's an official interruption. Well, what don't they like about what Peter and John were saying? Well, you'll notice that uh, chapter 4 begins in the middle of some action. And if you just glance back to chapter 3, uh, you'll see that the last event that Luke reported was a miraculous healing of a man who had been crippled from birth. It's an astonishing incident. Verse 11, the crowds are astonished. But as we read chapter 3, we notice that Peter deflects attention away from the miracle and he starts explaining the significance of the miracle to the crowds. And it's this explanation, not the miracle, that upsets the authorities. This is made clear in verse 2. They were greatly disturbed. You could translate that as annoyed. They were annoyed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. The authorities are upset, firstly, because these unschooled, uneducated men, as they are referred to in verse 13, are preaching publicly in the temple area without their permission. But that's not the thing that is the real problem. They were annoyed. Look at verse 2 again, because they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but as you sort of read the Bible, if you are in the habit of kind of reading the Bible every day or a few times a week, whatever, sometimes you can just skim over a line like that. And we skim over these words and we think, don't we, that this is referring to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. After all, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal and the apostles were eyewitnesses to it. So we wouldn't be surprised to find them going around telling everybody about the resurrection of Jesus and perhaps offering proof of its happening. But look again at verse 2, and you'll see that is not their message at all. In fact, there was little need in Jerusalem to persuade people of the facts of the resurrection. It was a recent event. Everybody had seen it. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that 500 people witnessed the risen Jesus. And so if they're not going around talking about the fact of the resurrection, what are they doing? Well, look again at verse 2 with me. They were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Several years ago, an Australian TV station reported an event called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And the question was put to a bunch of panelists, which dangerous idea do you think has the most power to change the world for the better? And they went through their kind of you know, diverse selection of panelists and the atheist homosexual panelist launched into his dangerous idea that abortion should be mandatory for 30 years to reduce the population. The feminist, Jermaine Greer, was on the panel as well, and she said something along the lines of freedom, particularly for women. And as the host worked his way through the panel, he came to the British journalist, Peter Hitchings, one of those sort of Marmite characters that you either love or hate, brother of the famous Christ, uh, atheist Christopher Hitchings, and this is what he said. He was asked, remember, what is the most dangerous idea that has potential to change the world? And Peter Hitchings said this, the belief that Jesus Christ was Son of God and rose from the dead is the most dangerous idea you will ever encounter. The television host looked baffled and said, why? Because, replied Peter Hitchings, it turns the universe from a meanless chaos into a place of justice and hope. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. See, the apostles' message in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead is to say something much bigger than that a single man came back from the dead. And in the context of chapter 3, it is the announcement of the beginning of the end. It is the end of the reign of sickness and death and the beginning of a restored world. That is the whole point of Peter's sermon in chapter 3. The healed man's restoration, look down at verse 10, see what he calls it there. He calls it his wholeness. This man's wholeness is just a little sign of the wholeness that Jesus is bringing to the whole universe. If you were here last week, remember the tube of Pringles. If you weren't here last week, ask somebody about it over coffee. Why is a tube of Pringles an illustration of our times? It's because the last days are here. 
and this man's wholeness and healing, this incredible reversal of bodily brokenness is a small glimpse of the wholeness and healing that Jesus' resurrection will guarantee for the entire universe. And this is why the message of resurrection is dangerous because it is, if you think about it, the proclamation of a new king. It's not just, here is a nice little spiritual topic of conversation. It's a declaration of regime change for the universe. And so hope and justice are being proclaimed. Hope for every downtrodden, desperate and dying person. And judgment for those who reject God's king. It's dangerous, particularly in this context, which is why we read verse 3. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. Remember, this is the first recorded act of hostility against Christians since Jesus' ascension. And so it sets a pattern for all future acts of hostility against God's people. From the burning of Christians by the Emperor Nero to the suppression of Christians in modern-day communist China from the execution of Stephen in chapter 7 to the disdain and mockery of evangelicals from our modern liberal elites, from the burning of churches in northern Nigeria to that bully in the playground who laughs at the fact that you go to church. It's always the same reason. It's because of what Christians say. This is the point Peter is making in verse 9. They are not being tried for this act of kindness, but it's for what they say. It's the message of the resurrection that gets them into trouble. You see the significance of that. If all we do are acts of kindness, then people will like us. If all we ever are is nice to our neighbours, then we'll be respected, maybe even liked. If all we ever do is work hard at work, we'll be appreciated. If all we ever do at school is fit in, we'll be popular. But it's when we open our mouths to speak about Jesus that hostility and persecution will come. And so the flip side of this sermon, I suppose, is if you want to be liked, if you want to be respected, if you want to be popular and admired in this world, stay silent about Jesus. If there is no gospel proclamation, if a church or a denomination stops proclaiming the gospel, they will stop being persecuted. See this in all parts of the world. Silent Christians are popular Christians, but people who speak the gospel will be persecuted. As Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But here's the question this section is really here to answer. Does persecution work? Can the authorities silence the gospel? Does it ever produce the desired result? Well, look at verse 4. Not in this case. Because Luke now tells us that many who heard the message believed. And the number of men grew to about 5,000. As you read the book of Acts, you see these little summary statements that Luke gives us about the numerical growth of the church. 120, 3,000. And now it's 5,000. And I think he throws this in here to make us see that the persecution, the squashing of the authorities of the Christians is utterly ineffective in doing what's intended to do. In fact, it has just the opposite effect. The church actually grows through persecution. There are many examples of this in church history. Simon Tomlinson, one of our other elders, and I met with a man the week before last who was from a mission agency called Echoes, and they've given us support in the past. Some of you remember Shishen Wang, our Chinese pastor, and this group of people supported us financially as we trained Shishen. Simon and I were meeting with this uh, man over a cup of tea and a lovely piece of shortbread. He was from Scotland, so I provided the shortbread, and we just were chatting about all sorts of kind of things happening over the world and things that he's been involved in. He's close to retirement. He's had a long, uh, many years of service in Christian mission. 
And one particular story he told us about this group of uh, Bible-believing churches uh, was in Ethiopia that he'd had personal connections with. And he took us right back, and I don't know if you know the history of the country, but he took us back to 1978 when the communists took over the country. And he said, just like in China a little bit before that, when the communists took over, they kicked out all the missionaries. And they left just one healthy church from this group of churches meeting in the capital, Addis Ababa. Eventually, this church was shut down, and the communists confiscated their buildings and forced them underground, and they met secretly in small groups. But it turned out that this was just an incubation period for the church. In those years, that little group of Christians, about 40 in total, studied the Bible encouraged each other and witnessed to Christ as best they could, and they suffered persecution. And when the communist regime ended in 1993, there were not one little church, but 30 churches meeting underground. Now there are 276 in this group of churches. Some of them have congregations in the thousands of members. And so what was a tiny suppressed church of 40 now numbers tens of thousands of people? 16th century reformer Theodore Beza said this to King Henry IV. He said, it belongs to the church of Christ to which I belong to receive blows rather than to deal them. But your majesty will remember that it is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. When we ride the thermals of the spirit, ministry is effortless. No, that's not right, is it? It's not that ministry is effortless. But the word of God is effective. People of God might be in chains, but the gospel itself is free. And yet the second thing we're going to see is that even when the people of God are in chains, they are still free as well. That's our second point in 5 to 22, the freedom of God's people. Well, look how the story continues. Verse 5, the next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? What we get here, then, is a trial. And Luke gives us quite a lot of details about the men who are putting them on trial. These men are referred to in verse 16 as the Sanhedrin. And so they are the same men, very same men, who Luke actually names, who tried Jesus and sentenced him to death. It's important to keep that in mind as we listen to Peter's reply. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I want to draw your attention to five features of Peter's speech. Firstly, it's courageous. There's no question that this was a scary group of men to face. These are the officials of the Jewish nation, the religious officials. They had power. Obviously, they could use that power through the Roman governor to kill people, as they did with Jesus. And they were not famous for their leniency or integrity or their openness to reason. But notice what Peter does in that situation. Rather than trying to save their lives and defend themselves, they go on the offensive and actually confront Jesus' killers with the uncomfortable truth of their sin. Notice that. We healed the crippled man in the name of Jesus, whom you crucified. And so Peter has turned the leader's trial of the apostles into the apostles' trial of the leaders. It's deeply courageous. Even the council themselves recognize this in verse 13. 
He then gives them in verse 11 a biblical weight to this verdict. So this is not just us and our opinion. Listen to what God says, verse 11. Jesus, who you crucified, is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 18, and it may need a bit of unpacking in our ears. But all you need to do as you walk out the door is look at the piles of rock and stone in the courtyard, and you'll have a perfect illustration of what is being said here. See, if you make a house out of bricks, I, I'm, I don't know a lot about building, but I'm guessing each brick is pretty much the same. If you work with quarried stone, stones come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And so builders have to select the right stone to put in the right place. And you can go and have a look on the way out. Some of those stones are enormous. They fit in a particular part. There's a particularly big one, which apparently is the biggest part of our project, which you walk over as you go into the hall. To, to move that stone down is almost going to cost as much as any other single part of the project. It's a, it's a huge job. But that stone quarried was just right for that particular place in our building. And so the illustration from Psalm 18 is about builders choosing the right stone for the right place. And sometimes a stone is rejected because it doesn't seem to fit the required position in the wall. Particularly the stone for the all-important capstone or cornerstone, which in the ancient world was the foundation stone of the whole building. And so that's the image that the Old Testament psalmist, and now Peter is using to metaphorically drive home the way the rulers of Israel has treated Jesus. This stone that they treated with such contempt that they discarded because he just looked like a, a sort of a insurrectionist from Nazareth. He has actually been vindicated by God and it turns out he is the most important stone in the whole building, they have made a cataclysmic mistake. They have rejected God's own king. And so in bringing this truth into the situation is incredibly courageous, isn't it? Secondly, though, it's Christ-centered and clear. Look at verse 10 and notice how Peter moves the explanation to Jesus. He doesn't sort of talk about freedom of speech or please don't put me in prison or anything like that. He talks about Jesus. And notice how utterly clear he is in verses 10 to 12 about Jesus, why he matters, what he's done. See, I think this is very practical for us, isn't it? Because none of us are going to have to stand in front of the Sanhedrin. It's also true... I think that some are more gifted at evangelism than others in a church. But all Christians are called to be witnesses. I think Jesus makes that clear in, in, Acts, uh, in Matthew 28 when he sends all disciples out into the world to bear witness to him. And so if you are a committed disciple of Jesus, then you are a witness. And what it tells us here is that does mean talking about Jesus. See, do you notice how the authorities don't want to mention his name? They keep saying, the name, verse 7, verse 17, the name. They can't bring themselves to actually mention Jesus' name. But the apostles bring the conversation back to Jesus. And I think we've got to discipline ourselves and train ourselves and teach ourselves and encourage each other to do the same. See, it's not enough to speak about religion or spirituality, as Jack was saying earlier. I don't think it's enough even to speak about God. And it's not how you feel about Jesus that matters. It's the specific objective content that you read in verses 10 to 12. His life of obedience, his death as a sacrifice for sins, his resurrection and rule, and our need to respond by turning to him for the forgiveness of our sins. That is the gospel. It's a good reminder, isn't it, I think, as we have those conversations with those who don't know God, that we need, over time, to steer the conversation to Jesus and to the objective truth 
of the gospel. Now, you don't have to do that by standing in a pulpit and preaching or even giving them a kind of six-point gospel outline. One way of beginning to do this is to tell your story. If you're a Christian this morning, you have an amazing story of conversion. You don't have to be a knife-wielding gang leader before you were converted. Some of us have interesting stories like that. Well, I can tell you later who the knife-wielding gang leaders, if you're interested. But I'm um, just kidding. Um, but you do have the story that God has made a difference in your life. And everybody loves a good story. I was talking to someone a while ago, and they were telling me about, for about 20 minutes about, I think it was about some lost luggage or something. And I was listening to this politely for 20 minutes. And I was thinking, why don't I give them 20 minutes about my story? <laughs> why not try it out over coffee? Grab someone this morning, tell them your story, how you became a Christian. Ask them for feedback, ask them if you could make it better. Another way is the way Flick encourages us to do, which is to actually show people in the Bible. Let the Word do its work. Let Jesus himself walk off the pages of the New Testament. We need to train ourselves, don't we, to have that tool at our fingertips. Just to be able to say in a natural kind of way, look, I'd love to sit down with you and show you from the Bible why Jesus matters so much. Or there's the line that the, uh, the, the man who, who wrote the word one-to-one, -one, or well, that was John, but the, the man who wrote the kind of marginal notes, he said, look, the best-selling book in the whole world of all time is the Bible. And if you've never read it, as an adult, you might be surprised what you learn. That's his line. Would you be interested in reading, he says, the first 18 verses of John's Gospel with me? But of course, to do any of this, we do need to know people who don't know Jesus. And that might be something some of us need to work on first. Are you available? Are you too busy with church things to have those relationships outside the church? Are you involved in the community? Could you just start by aiming to be the friendliest household on your street? To give yourself just 10 minutes in the playground in the morning before rushing off to talk to people? And to learn to ask questions, to take an interest in other people, to ask how they see the world. It can begin with very small things. I know there are lots of people in this church who are very deeply involved in all sorts of things going on outside church. And that's wonderful. We need to learn from them. But for some of us, it might just be a very simple thing. For me, it's the discipline of not always being in a rush when I walk down my street. Because one of the, the sources of conversations I have with, is with neighbours. But I'm always rushing to the next meeting. I never have time just to stop and talk. Well, if you're a Christian this morning, it might be worth just pausing at this point and asking yourself honestly, when was the last time you had a clear conversation with somebody about Jesus? Can you remember the time? Was it last week? Was it last month? Was it last year? Was it too long ago to remember? It's courageous, it's Christ-centered and clear, and thirdly, it is kind. Look at verse 12. Salvation, Peter says, is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 21 that I read at the beginning? He said, they will deliver you to synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors, all on account of my name. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Which is interesting because it tells you that the way to defend the gospel is to proclaim the gospel. The way to defend the gospel is to proclaim the gospel. Yes, sometimes there is a place for what we call apologetic arguments, you know, the creation of the world, the veracity of the Bible, the historicity of the resurrection, all those kind of questions that people have. But ultimately, they don't defend the gospel. What defends the gospel is the gospel's own proclamation. In other words, the gospel defends itself. The gospel is put on trial, 
and he preached the gospel in its own defense. But what I want to draw your attention to as well is that this is extraordinarily kind. Jesus said we are to love our enemies. And here is Peter and John preaching salvation to the very ones who killed the Lord Jesus. Salvation is available. Salvation. Even now God is willing to forgive your sins. And again, I don't know about you, but I find this immensely challenging. Because as we'll come to in a moment, there are all sorts of reasons we fail to open our mouths to speak the gospel. Fear is one, shame is another, what Paul calls the shame of the foolishness of the cross. But here I wonder if one reason is simple lack of love. We need to remember that the man or woman or boy or girl standing in front of us is an image bearer of God with eternity stretching before them. And to look at them and ask yourself, where will they be in 100 years from now? Where will they be in 10,000 years from now? And we know that that eternity will be decided by their response to Jesus Christ in this life. He will either welcome them as a beloved family member or drive them away into outer darkness. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to make that clear. I did that recently with somebody I've been trying to share the gospel with for a long time, and I just wasn't getting through, and they didn't want to talk, so I wrote them a letter, handwritten letter, a rare thing these days, isn't it? And said, look, this is why I want you to listen to this. Because you're facing eternity. And the only thing that you can do is trust in Jesus. Did you know that the vast majority of people in the UK have never heard that? The vast majority of people you will pass on your way home have never heard that clearly explained? Of course they haven't. Because we're in a minority, aren't we? It's always loving to speak the gospel. And if you are not a Christian this morning, then this is what we want to tell you. This is why we're so thrilled that you're here. If you've come with a friend to church this morning, perhaps for the first time, they are thrilled because they love you. And they want you to know what Jesus has done for them. They want you to know that forgiveness and eternal life and reconciliation with God is freely available if you turn to Jesus Christ. It is incredibly kind. Fourthly, it's an expression of ultimate freedom. So look at verse 16. The council should have been moved, shouldn't they? But instead, they have a little bit of a conflab, 16 and 17. What are we going to do with these men, they ask? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Now look at the disciples' response, verse 18. They called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Now this is one of those sort of irony, almost comedy moments in the book of Acts. And Luke is wanting to see the to show us the helplessness of the leaders to stop this thing spreading, as he puts it. And in contrast, the absolute freedom of the Christian disciple to disobey that authority. Look how clearly Peter puts it. He says, we cannot do what you're asking. We cannot accept the demand to silence if we want to be obedient to God, verse 20. We are not just offering an opinion. This is God's gospel for the world. We cannot be silent because we are witnesses to the resurrection. Now, Eckhart Schnabel is a New Testament scholar. Eckhart Schnabel has written an excellent commentary on Acts. It's my favorite commentary, but to be honest, I just love saying his name. <laughs> Eckhart Schnabel puts it like this, he says, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is a right of the Christian. Isn't that striking? In a day when everybody is standing on their rights and we might be concerned about the erosion of the right of free speech, uh, you may have read this week, you know, the vicar, he's, I believe, close to someone in this church, his, his bank account was frozen. Again, talk about that over coffee. We're concerned about these things, these democratic rights, rights of equality and so on. But Schnabel says, this is one right that you have that no one can take away. You have a right, a divine mandate to proclaim the gospel. And this is the freedom of the Christian. Not, of course, a right to preach the gospel unharmed, but you've got a right to do it. And that is a tremendous freedom. The enemies of the gospel expect us to defend ourselves. We needn't. They expect us to capitulate. With God's help, we don't. They intend the gospel to be silenced. It never is. They expect us to retaliate. Instead, we just offer them the gracious gospel. We are so free as Christians. And you can trace this through Christian history, which is littered with martyrs who've reveled in that freedom, even as they've burned and bled. See this in the Bible. A couple of chapters later, Stephen. Lord, do not hold this sin against them, are his last words. Who, of course, was imitating Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And finally, fifthly, all of this is the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Peter, you'll remember, was the disciple who went down in history for denying Jesus three times during his trial. He did capitulate. But now notice that all-important detail in verse 8. It's the Holy Spirit that enables Peter to proclaim the gospel in this way. You see this all the way through the book of Acts. To be filled with the Holy Spirit leads to bold proclamation. And that is what the promise of Jesus was about. That's what the Holy Spirit wants and enables him to do. This, you'll remember from last week, is why the Spirit has been given in the last days. Not to give us a pleasant life, not to guide us in our lifestyle decisions. Spirit has been given to enable us to proclaim the gospel. And therefore, if we're going to speak the gospel, we have to get over what evangelist Rico Tice calls the pain line. He says this, he says, if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, you're going to get hurt. I know there's a pain line that needs to be crossed if I tell someone the gospel. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know exactly how that feels. That conversation we have with ourselves, that battle, am I going to be on the cruise ship or am I going to be on the lifeboat? Because we know that salvation is found in no one else. Verse 12. And sooner or later we do get hit. Someone mocks you or rejects you or demotes you or unlikes you or severs that relationship. And the time comes when we do bottle it. Why is that ultimately? Well, I think it's because we choose the idol of self-protection and comfort over pain. When we choose to remain on the cruise ship because we think the world is here for our comfort. I don't know if you find uh, The Hobbit a challenging film. But there's one bit of it which gets me every time. And it's the bit where Gandalf is trying to persuade Bilbo to, to go on the adventure, to leave his comfortable hobbit home and go and slay the dragon. And Bilbo just doesn't want to go because his life is so good in the Shire. And his home is full of lovely things and lovely food. And this is the line that, that Gandalf says. He says, when did doilies and your mother's dishes become so important to you? If you don't know what a doily is, ask somebody over 50 ask afterwards. 
And I find that line incredibly challenging because I like my hobbit hole very much. I like my comfort. I like the idol of my own self-protection. I like being liked and respected. And it takes a miraculous work of the spirit to get me out there, to slay the dragon, to speak the gospel. But how does the spirit work? We've been talking about the spirit, haven't we, all morning. How does the spirit actually do it? See, some of us are sitting here thinking, well, some of us are introverts, some of us are extroverts, some of us are hobbits, some of us are wizards. Um, and yet we're all to be witnesses. So how does this work? How does the spirit work on us? Is it personality? Is it gifting? Well, let's see it finally in the freedom of God, verses 23 to 31. What happens now is we get a pause between two bouts of persecution in chapter 5 and chapter 4. And so this section is a bit like the sort of halftime talk in the changing room. The church gets to breathe and to reflect on what has just happened and what to do about it. And the remarkable thing, I think, is that there is no change of strategy. In fact, the opposite is the case. There is a renewed commitment to publicly and dangerously doing the very thing they've been told not to do. But what I want us to notice here is that it begins with prayer, and that prayer is saturated with the word of God. Have a look at it, verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together and prayed to God. So there is a helpful reminder to us. In the midst of persecution, when there's nothing else you can do, and you're thinking perhaps about those brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are being severely persecuted, what can we do? We can pray for them. And if you want to think more about this, then I commend to you again those talks uh, from the Real Food series that you'll find on the podcast on prayer. But it's what they pray for that is most significant. And I think this gives us a whole way of looking at the world. Verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Firstly, notice what they don't pray for. As is so often the case in the book of Acts and the New Testament, when Christians are under threat and in trouble or in prison or facing death, the one thing they don't pray for is their own safety or escape or that they may be spared further suffering. And that is humbling and challenging, isn't it? Nor do they use the words of Psalm 2 to pray that God will laugh at the Sanhedrin, terrify the persecutors with his wrath, break their oppressors with an iron rod and dash them to pieces like pottery. Now look what they do instead. They preach to themselves. They teach themselves through the word of God, the absolute freedom of God over this world. That he is totally in control over creation, over history, even over the crucifixion of Jesus, and therefore nothing that can happen is outside his plan. They remind themselves through the words of Psalm 2 that when the nations shake their fists at God, God and his gospel is not under threat. On the contrary, the very act of trying to stop the witness spreads it even further. Through this prayer, they remind themselves and teach themselves that opposition is normal and to be expected. And they remind themselves that what God wants and intends is for the message of the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth because the risen ruling Jesus is in fact gathering his people to himself and there is no obstacle big enough to stop him. And so when they pray, consider their threats. They're not asking God to exact vengeance, but they're simply handing the problem over to God, asking him to be concerned about the situation so they can 
face their opponents with courage and faithfulness that they need to fulfill their calling as witnesses. And so what then do they pray for? One of the things we've been learning in that series at Real Food is that prayer is essentially asking God for things that only he can do. What is it they pray for? They don't ask for an easy life. They don't ask for vengeance on their enemies. What do they pray for? Well, look at it. Verse 30. They want more healings like the one in chapter 3. So they can have more opportunities to speak publicly about Jesus. But the big prayer is in verse 31. The big miracle the one that they need to keep on speaking, the deep work of the Holy Spirit to get us out of our hobbit holes into the world. Verse 29, enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And look at verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. It's a kind of testimony God has heard their prayer already. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And as a result of that, we are here this morning, 2,000 years later. And here's the thing, I reckon that prayer was already being answered as the Spirit worked in them through the words that they had just prayed. That's how the Spirit works. So let's pray now that that will be true for us too. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great and gracious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that your word makes it clear that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so we pray that each of us here now will bow in our hearts to Jesus, whether for the first time or the thousandth time trusting him alone to take us into eternity with our sins washed clean. And we pray that you'd forgive us for the times that we are silenced by the hostility of the world to the message of Jesus' kingship. Please forgive us for the times we've been ashamed of the cross. Please forgive us for our lack of love for those who are lost, our lack of concern for your glory. Please forgive us for worshipping the idols of our own comfort and respect. And help us by your spirit to boldly and obediently and graciously speak about Jesus to those around us, trusting your word to do its work, knowing that it's the victorious Christ who's growing his church in the midst of the deception and the division of these last days. We pray this for ourselves, we pray this for our whole church, we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.